Good afternoon and welcome to our colloquium for 23-24 academic year. Um, this is an opportunity for us in academic affairs here at EMU to engage in intellectual dialogue, to hear from our faculty um, while we are gathered as faculty, staff, and students. It allows us also to hear about current research findings, to hear the ways in which ideas are explored and developments through interdisciplinary engagement. And so today I wanna to introduce Dr. Kathy Smeltzer-Erb. She is the Professor of Teacher Education at EMU, the Director of the Academic Success Center and Co-Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning. She wears many hats. Previously, she served as the Director of Undergraduate Teacher Education for 16 years. Kathy's lifelong passion of all things teaching and learning has been nurtured through undergraduate years at EMU, through her master's and her PhD programs at the University of Toronto, as well as through teaching middle school and high school in, in our Ontario, Canada, and also now in higher education. Kathy's passion resides in pedagogical practice, influencing teachers towards equitable and inclusive practices that engage all learners. Today, we will hear from Kathy, particularly on embedding restorative justice pedagogy in K-12 instructional practice. Embedding restorative justice pedagogy in K-12 instructional practice is the result of a research study that draws upon a framework of restorative justice in education pedagogy developed in collaboration with Dr. Kathy Evans, who's with us today. The framework examines the intersection between three components of restorative justice, nurture healthy relationships, repair harm, and transfer transform conflict, and create just and equitable learning environments and common instructional dimensions such as content, learning experiences, assessment and evaluation, social emotional environment, and physical environment. The findings of the study feature the pedagogical, pedagogical practices applied by K-12 educators within a restorative justice and education framework. Let's welcome Dr. Kathy Smeltzer-Erb. Thank you, Dr. Willingham. I am thrilled to be here this afternoon uh, presenting on uh, a very engaging study uh, during my sabbatical uh, and some work that is near and dear to my heart and also uh, still developing and emerging. So thank you for being here. Uh, I welcome you into this conversation. So I imagine in this group that there is probably a range of the spectrum from novice to expert uh, in terms of knowledge about and experience with restorative justice in education. So hopefully this presentation will kind of bridge, um, provide enough scaffolding for those of you that are novices and also enough challenge for those of you that are experts in the field of RJ and practicing practitioners. So a bit of background uh, to this study. Several years ago, you know, sometime during COVID, that's about where I can land on that, um, Kathy Evans and I began developing a restorative justice in education pedagogy framework, a model, we call it. Um, and it was theoretical at that point, and we knew that. Um, and we kept refining it. We presented in a variety of, of different forums, conferences, um, the RJE conference uh, that happens here annually. And we kept refining it, and even refining it into this study. Uh, 
And during that time, EMU's graduate teacher education program was, uh, had partnered with a school division and uh, had offered, completed uh, eight cohorts of students uh, completing EMU's graduate certificate in restorative justice and education. And we began hearing rumblings in conversations in which we engaged that, that the RJE uh, completers were feeling pretty confident in their integration of RJE in um, classroom environments, in relationships, um, we might say in discipline matters, but that maybe there was a gap in how they were integrating into instructional practice. And so as I was looking toward a sabbatical in spring semester 2023, Kathy and I got talking and it didn't take very long for us to land on the idea that the time is ripe to actually conduct a research study uh, on what instructional practice looks like from an RJE framework. So that gave us opportunity to link the theory with the practice. And that's what this uh, presentation focuses on today. So let's get moving in that direction. I want to start with a dedication. A dedication to 17 educators who participated in this study. This truly is their story. And I was honored to be part of that, to engage in conversations with them, uh, to participate in classrooms and see RJE in practice. And I also want to dedicate and honor Dr. Kathy Evans, the work that she has done forefronting this in RJE and then moving into this collaborative work of developing an RJE pedagogy model. A groundbreaker, a trendsetter, a dreamer of what is possible with RJE and a collaborator in the development of this model. So it would have been just, yes, absolutely, absolutely. It would have been wonderful if our sabbatical semesters, if our eligibility <laughs> landed in the same semester, and it didn't happen. So uh, I engaged the study very much with Kathy's work in mind and the framework provided. So some scaffolding for those of you who might be newer uh, to RJE. RJE as a field very much uh, moves back and forth between philosophy and theory. And it's important that when we talk about RJE pedagogy that we don't look at the restorative practices in isolation, that we embed those in what we know about the theory. And, and that, um, the way that happens is often through a very reflective cycle. Reflection, theory, practice, and it goes back and forth in that diagram that you see there. So some definitions of RJE, and I want to highlight um, a few key um, ideas, a few key values, principles from some of the uh, theorists that have developed RJE. So from Morrison, restorative justice is a philosophy, a set of principles, and a set of practices that affirm, repair, and rebuild relationships. From Stutzman, Amstutz, and Mullet, RJ promotes values and principles that use inclusive, collaborative approaches for being in community. And these approaches validate the experiences of needs of everyone within that community, especially focused on marginalized, oppressed, and harmed, persons who have been harmed. And then it allows us to act and respond in ways that heal. From Barsega, Castro, Harris, 
RJ is a philosophy and a set of principles rooted in indigenous teachings that emphasize our interconnection by repairing relationships when harm occurs, while proactively building and maintaining relationships to prevent future harm. And from Kathy Evans and Dorothy Vandering, RJ in education is about facilitating learning communities that nurture the capacity of people to engage with one another and their environment in a manner that supports and respects the inherent dignity and worth of all. So the core values that RJE as a framework draw upon that uh, center in this research are those of respect, dignity, and mutual concern. And you see those around the perimeter of that diagram there. There are other values noted here, um, drawing from the work of various other uh, researchers in RJE. And then I want us to take a look at the principles of RJE. And I am going to read through all of these here because I think, again, they're important in looking at the values, looking at the principles that frame this work. Healthy relationships are essential for effective learning. We know that as educators. We all function better when our core needs are honored and met. Conflict is a learning opportunity, not something to be avoided. Within supportive environments, we become accountable to one another. Support for making things right moves us toward healing. And the experiences of justice and injustice impact people's sense of community. And I want to also note that um, this work draws upon the work of many other uh, persons in the RJE field, including Wynne, noted on this slide as well. So as Kathy and I began talking about and moving toward an RJE pedagogy, we wanted to draw specifically on the pedagogical choices and the curricular decisions that educators face, primarily in the classroom. And so then we needed um, a curriculum and instruction framework to intersect with that. And so we draw upon five areas of curriculum instruction, content, learning experiences, assessment and evaluation, socio-emotional environment, and physical environment. And I wanna take us back to that diagram again and look at the three elements that are identified as significant in RJE and that's nurturing healthy relationships, create just and equitable learning environments, and repair harm and transform conflict. So when we talk about looking at a bit of definition of the categories of curriculum instruction, we look at content. And for teachers, content is about the knowledge, the concepts. What's the subject matter that students are learning? And we may think about that as the what part of teaching. The learning experiences tend to focus on those instructional approaches or strategies. And what is it that engages the learner in making sense of that content of the subject they're learning? And we often refer to that kind of as the how of teaching. How are students engaging that content? Assessment and evaluation is the process of giving feedback to students um, on how they are demonstrating what they've learned. The social-emotional environment 
centers relationships of students and teacher emotions, both of those, and looks at feelings regarding the learning experience. And then the physical environment is um, the physicality of the classroom. So how is the classroom designed? How is it laid out? What are the spaces that exist? What resources are available to students? What practices are implemented? Um, how are student seating arrangements uh, formed? What equipment is there? Uh, and how does that impact um, the learning? So to intersect these um, different elements, Kathy and I developed this matrix with the RJE components down the left column and the curriculum instruction components across the top row there. And for each of those intersections in this matrix, we ask a question that says, that asks, what does content, that column, look like when we nurture healthy relationships? And looked at each of those uh, questions in um, the matrix and how those two intersect. So that was the nature of the inquiry. And in general, the research question then focused on what does restorative justice in education look like when intersecting those RJE components with those curriculum and instruction components? So at the time of uh, starting this study, last January, there were 72 completers of the Graduate Teacher Education uh, RJE certificate program working within or from within a single um, school division. And that those students were in eight cohorts that went through um, the RJE certificate program together at different points over a several year period. I invited all 72 graduates, excuse me, uh, to participate in the study, found out in that process that nine were no longer employed uh, with the division, variety of reasons. So um, of that remaining 63, 27% of the graduates participated and that involved 17 participants. And those participants came from a variety of um, roles in the division, classroom teachers, classroom assistants, some student support services, building administrators, and central office personnel. So some of these persons were able to speak directly from what their instructional practice looks like because they're in the classroom uh, all of the time. Others spoke about what they were seeing happening at the building level or the district level, uh, what was evident uh, within the, the uh, classroom setting. So all of the instruments uh, were focused on gathering data around that question of what does RJE look like within those different um, elements of curriculum and instruction. So there was a pre-survey that asked participants to self-assess their own strengths according to the RJE pedagogy model. They also were asked to look at what areas of growth they might have and to identify where they were applying it and what gaps they might identify in their own practice. Probably the richest data, which is also what I expected, came from interviews, where participants, again, took them through the model, um, asking those questions in the matrix, and they recounted how they apply RJE in their practice. And that really was a rich set of data um, 
and we'll get into that in a bit. I also conducted observations of teaching practice. Again, the same model. Um, so those were my observations of what I saw teachers engaging in practice. And then following those observations, I did a post-observation conference where I could member check the data that the educators had uh, reported on the applications of, of the RJE model. And then ended with a post-survey uh, where participants could again reflect on, after having uh, those conversations, the feedback sessions, what did they identify as their strengths, where are their areas of growth, again talking about applications and gaps. It was interesting to me in the conversations with, um, especially with classroom teachers, that um, many of them noted uh, just appreciation for the way to think about their practice in relation to the model. That wasn't something they had really thought about. And again, I think that goes back perhaps to um, the history of RJ, for one thing, the field focusing much more perhaps on relationships, on sometimes on discipline, sometimes on classroom uh, environments, but not necessarily thinking about the broader concepts or the other concepts with curriculum instruction and what RJE pedagogy looks like in those contexts. So often in, um, typically in qualitative research, uh, a researcher looks at the themes that are generated from that data set. And that was certainly my intent, that I would gather that data, look at those themes, and identify what those themes were. And as I was working through that and finding I was getting a little stuck on that one, I had a conversation with Kathy and I said, you know, I think the data analysis process is actually evident, <laughs> is structured in this chart, that that already was my thematic approach. So what do healthy relationships look like in content? So the task then in the data collation after collected was to categorize the data from participants according to this matrix. Um, and I do uh, intend, after a little bit more analysis and I think moving some things around, intend to give that entire data set uh, to the school division. Because I think that's a really rich um, set of data that can inform practice can help even just by reading that, um, can inspire uh, educators to think about ways of applying RJE that they may not have thought about. Um, they think about their own practice and what RJE looks like in their practice, but don't necessarily um, think about what it might look like in somebody else's or aren't necessarily aware of what somebody else's classroom may look like. So uh, I want to forward that data um, after a bit more time with it. So, Size 13 font looks really good on the big screen. <laughs> Text heavy, yep, I know it. <laughs> Again, as I started thinking about, okay, um, how do I present some of the data? It's qualitative, it always looks different than when you do a quantitative study. Um, decided uh, to select a sample of the data, and I highlight this truly is a sample um, of what data came forward. And I'm going to draw from this in talking through the data. You're welcome to read along. You're welcome just to ignore that text-heavy uh, screen slide um, and listen to the conversation. So we start with content and asking the question, what does content look like when we 
nurture healthy relationships. And I'm going to scroll ahead to find my own handout here because it's even tiny for me up there. So content when we nurture healthy relationships. Teachers talked about prioritizing social-emotional learning competencies uh, with the content, so teach integrating those two together. Um, starting the year by teaching the concept of dignity. So the value of spending time on the relationships with students help to further student learning of the content. And that goes back actually to the one of the principles that Evans and, and Lester um, identified for RJE. Um, we know that students learn better when there is relationship. So centering and focusing on that. Selecting literature and curriculum that is focused on healthy relationships, on life skills, on RJE values and principles, on empathy, again, on SEL skills. Um, Sometimes, I mean, we often think, uh, or the tendency can be to think that um, there is certain content that teachers need to teach. But there is some flexibility often in where they draw those, that content from. So thinking about that in the selection of literature when possible. Selecting text with content and character representation of students in the classroom uh, so that students can find their place um, in that community of learners and in the curriculum. Promoting a growth mindset. How do we help students learn to keep an open mind? How do we help them talk about emotions by naming what the brain is doing, what the brain is going through? and giving the brain time to learn and understand the content um, and validating the thoughts that students have, even when those thoughts differ from the thoughts of others in that, in that classroom or around the content. What does content look like when we repair harm and transform conflict? Educators talked about the importance of teaching microaggressions and cultural responsiveness, helping students learn what that means and how that shapes um, how they repair harm, how they transform conflict, how they interact in the classroom. Using content circles uh, to teach the content and to center student voice and listening skills and again, content circles, uh, often circles are thought about as being sometimes more process-oriented around perhaps harm, but actually thinking about them around teaching the content. In language arts, selecting literature that mirrors societal issues, so refugee experience, war, poverty, moving to a new community, racial interactions, and focus on the harm and the conflict in, those, uh, in that literature. In science, study multi-gender, multicultural, multi-race scientists. In social studies, teach systemic harms caused toward groups in history. And what does the content look like when we create just and equitable learning environments? We show positive identity aspects rather than only the hardships and struggles, thinking about the content as the focus. Examine racism and all school-wide data and act upon that data when we see dis disproportionate inequities. A program called Curbside that allows for students 
to step out of the classroom, teachers perhaps in some cases may not be in curbside, but um, step out of the classroom when it gets to the point where a teacher can't teach and a student can't learn. There's too much going on, too much chaos, too much conflict. So providing ways in which can minimize that lost learning. In language arts, social studies and music, all identifying, selecting texts focused on justice, equity, diverse voices and perspectives with cultural representation of students in the classroom. Because that helps to inform the conversation with students and emphasizing primary sources rather than those sources that are often controlled by media uh, and social agenda. And then examine who's featured in historical accounts and in uh, music compositions. So in learning experiences, what do learning experiences look like when we nurture healthy relationships? Circles uh, were featured, were highlighted frequently. Socratic seminars and offer circles, offer that possibility in a different way, perhaps. Um, strategies that center student voices. So what are ways in which um, we can make sure that student voice is heard? Using wait time. Pausing after speaking or listening, speaking and listening. Uh, respecting that silence to honor student ideas before moving on. Consider collectivist cultural practices. Often in education, we think about um, independent um, student work. And in this case, encouraging group and partner talk. Uh, intentional focus on listening to others, sharing ideas even if it duplicates what somebody else has already said. What do learning experiences look like when we repair harm and transform conflict? We increase the language among students and teachers to acknowledge when harm is caused and use language consistent with restoring harm. Provide structure for conversation when conflict arises, teaching students how to have that conversation, how to effectively work in small groups is a skill that doesn't just come naturally to students or to college students, I'll add. Um, lessen the focus on outcome or on product in favor of that social emotional learning. And skills that teach positive attitude, the need to redesign sometimes what it is that's happening in the curriculum, teach perseverance, how to work with people uh, that you don't necessarily know that well or maybe don't get along with. What do learning experiences look like when we create just and equitable learning environments? We take a look at, we examine who speaks and when, how often, who has the floor. We ensure equitable learning experiences and inclusive pedagogies. We provide extra time for students who need it with the care not to ignore students or omit time with students who don't necessarily need that extra time because we know that exclusion harms everyone. We might draw names uh, name sticks for equity of voices, not just for the fastest student to respond. And also put those name sticks back in um, the cup so that students can monitor their own attention and their engagement. Might decide that, okay, sometimes shout outs are okay, but not hesitate to revert to sticks um, when student voice is omitted from some groups of students. Assessment and evaluation. What do assessment and evaluation practices look like 
when we nurture healthy relationships. So again, much of um, many assessment evaluation practices tend to focus on um, assessing a single student. But what about thinking about group projects or products uh, to show learning? And the idea that students actually learn from each other. And sometimes they learn from the group that they're working with. We invite students to prompt a peer for what they may have heard in the group. Um, partner work is appropriate evidence of learning. That may challenge some of our preconceived notions, again, focusing on the independent. But establishing trust that students aren't just copying, that they're actually learning um, in, when they engage in a group. Use multiple means to demonstrate learning. Students might create a podcast. They might have, there might be oral evidence. Um, so what are multiple ways in which students can demonstrate that? What do assessment and evaluation practices look like when we repair harm and transform conflict? If a student becomes explosive in a class um, and shuts down, which can happen if they don't know how they can contribute in positive ways, get creative in thinking about the difficulty of questions or even think about the number of questions that are needed to, for the student to demonstrate that they have learned. May not be all 10 questions. Perhaps there are two critical questions that a teacher can focus on to identify student learning. Apply accommodations, again, talking about repairing harm and transforming conflict. Um, can a student dictate rather than write a response? Um, how, focusing on the fact that how content comes out of the brain isn't necessarily the important factor, um, but think about multiple ways in which we can, um, we can assess that. Allow students to make amends through authentic, meaningful, genuine ways to repair. Perhaps an apology, not necessarily, uh, might be written. It might be that they're doing something kind for uh, someone or for the classroom. What do assessment and evaluation practices look like when we create just and equitable learning environments? So consider the quantity of feedback that students receive and making sure that feedback is given to every student. Give a student choice in showing how they've learned and what they've learned and in a format of their choice. Maybe there can be a group project uh, that they pull together on a civil rights uh, unit or a World War II unit. Eliminate the focus of speed on learning, giving students the time they need to learn and the time they need to produce a product to show that they've learned. Again, wait time can demonstrate, help students demonstrate their learning. Prompting students with tech supports, not just waiting for them to respond, but can we nudge them along, maybe sentence frames, to assist them in, in showing what they know. And then also examine system-wide data. Who has access to what might be considered privileged experiences, advanced classes, STEM classes, or extracurriculars? And what do we do when we find out what that data may tell us and if there are disproportionate um, realities in that data. Social emotional environment. What do relational interactions look like when we nurture healthy relationships? The importance of the teacher setting and modeling the tone. 
the teachers or the adults in the room. The importance of remaining calm, de-escalating um, those intense emotions that arise in classrooms. Employing mindfulness practices, self-regulation, breathing, maybe taking a lap uh, within the school, or activities that bring that energy down when that's necessary. Helping students learn to manage their emotions, manage the stress, and I say students, I also say faculty as well. Listen to our bodies and invite students to participate at their comfort level and when they're ready. Naming when it's a hard emotional day. Stating that uh, to each other, teachers and students. And encouraging students to be gentle and kind to themselves. If they're frustrated, they can't learn. So talk about how their brain might be hijacking uh, the function of learning. And allow space for, sorry, skipped one there. Expect of ourselves as teachers what we expect of our students as well. The importance, again, of modeling, but also learning the approaches that we're trying to teach our students. And allow space for hard conversations in classrooms or with staff or at faculty meetings to nurture healthy relationships. So what do relational interactions look like when we repair harm and transform conflict? Returning to that concept of modeling dignity. How do we respond when something doesn't go as we planned or as we hoped it would? How do we repair when harms have been caused? In advance, prepare students how to, prepare ourselves for how to handle conflict and then also help our students learn how to handle conflict knowing that when we address it, then we can all move forward. Make time for circles, value repair over content. Value repair over content. And learn to know students and teachers' stories. Learn to know about these individuals and their lives. And what do relational interactions look like when we create just and equitable learning environments? We examine the demands placed on students of color in relation to white students. We get to know our students' needs. What are their emotional needs? What are their home situations? What's their past trauma? What's their racial or LGBTQ identity? Be aware of our own anti-racism and how we address anti-racism in the classroom. And listen to when students identify injustices and affirm students for identifying those injustices, teaching them how to self-advocate when they see injustice, being clear about our responses to how students see injustice, and explain decisions we make about injustice to students, not in a defensive way, but just to help them and to give less room for students to assume something incorrect, uh, providing opportunity to discuss those perspectives. And the physical environment. What does classroom design or layout look like when we nurture healthy relationships? Developing respect agreements, aiming for mutual concern for the entire community, being inclusive in addressing students, maybe calling them folks rather than a gender-related term. The idea of a peace corner, a setting for student-initiated regulation so that uh, the signal when, one, when a student needs that is a simple peace sign and the teacher can acknowledge that that's where the student is headed, a place to self-regulate. 
might have a sound machine, might be some calm music, but something to help the student um, kind of pull themselves together again. And in this case, when I think about visually what this looked like, um, especially on a beautiful day like today in the Shenandoah Valley, a peace corner that has an outside view uh, can be nourishing as well. The physical setup of the classroom, might there be sensory couches or settings to meet different needs, safe spaces, um, creative student groupings, not gender focused, but again, uh, focused on healthy life skills, all in ways to meet the differing needs of students in the classroom. Thinking about assigning seats based on optimal learning conditions. There might be round tables, there might be clusters of desks, but thinking about how often um, a student may be isolated and finding ways to bring them in with and have very few single desks in that classroom for the sake of community. And what does classroom design or layout look like when we repair harm and conflict? Thinking about um, detentions and the application of detentions so that applying for example, lunch detention only for lunchroom behaviors. Um, if they're throwing food, they clean up the food they've thrown. If they're stealing, they repair harm. After school learning to make up missed learning opportunities during the day, rather than labeling it as some kind of detention. Relationship with other is a prerequisite for restoring harm, for building community, and for nurturing those relationships. And what does classroom design or layout look like when we create just and equitable learning environments? Again, providing space for student voice as much as teacher voice, creating shared spaces that support the commitment to work together, honoring students' assessment when they say they can't work well with another student. That might be a hard one, but it's better for a student to have a partner that they can, who treats them well. Um, in furthering their learning. Create safe space for those hard equity questions and practice and conversations. And then responsive circles. Circles that respond to an issue that may affect the larger group. It might be a racial slur or it might be a disruption to the community. This data comes from the stories of this school division and Generally, the words that are used here are the words of those teachers that participated in this study. So what does this research tell us? Again, this is one single school division's story, integrating both, I would say, an RJE mission into their own mission, that mission of, and I heard this several times, who we are and who we want to be in the classroom and as a division. And those of you that don't circulate regularly in P12 schools, uh, I think it's important to know that that is a really unique mission and vision. Um, the fact that this school division has resourced its employees to learn about RJE, to learn about RJE practices, and then to expect them to integrate those practices into that school division. It is, from my perspective, not part of my study, but it is transforming that system. It is changing how people relate to each other. 
it is changing, I think, not just the school division, but also having ripple effects uh, into the community. So if I think um, about the structure of the matrix and where um, the pedagogy framework seemed to align um, more smoothly, more naturally uh, for the participants was in the areas of social-emotional environments, in physical environments, and in learning experiences. And that makes sense to me because of the history of RJE being very relational uh, focused. It was a bit more sometimes of a stretch for participants to identify ways in which RJE is integrated into content and into assessment and evaluation. I am, though, confident and hopeful and inspired by the work of this, student, of this school division that I think that is coming along. I think it, it was, again, some noted that it was helpful just to think about that and talk about that and find ways in which they kind of nudge themselves and push themselves forward when that's not a natural way of thinking about it. It is certainly evident and I think it's, it's progressing and will continue to develop in that way. And so where do we go from here? And I think about this um, perhaps more from the data set and the context in which this happened. Um, it's important to identify that cultural change in a system takes time. And again, many educators know that um, Michael Fullen, for example, would say it takes three years for an elementary school, it takes six years for a high school, it takes eight years for a division. That's a significant amount of time to uh, commit to something that a division believes in and to slog through that when it can feel like you're just, you know, facing the headwinds constantly. Um, again, this was an inspiring data set. It was a hopeful, um, hopeful responses from the educators that I worked with and all, of course, who were RJE proponents as well. Um, they're the ones that volunteered for the study uh, or agreed to participate in the study. But it is something that I think um, is going to move them forward. And Kathy and I talk about toward an RJE pedagogy. And that requires intentionality. It requires looking at RJE, looking at the curriculum instruction setting holistically, and how are we seeing those two brought together. So um, I'm inspired by um, what I saw. Um, I think with more professional development, with further spaces and places to integrate, I think the division is going to uh, further the RJE pedagogy and further definitely who they are, who they want to be in a classroom and as a division. And I land on this uh, quote from Evans and Vandering uh, to close this session and then invited you to respond with questions or comments. Restorative justice emphasizes social engagement rather than social control. This means that our starting point is how we are when we are together. And that starting point will be relationships rather than rules, people rather than policies, honoring rather than evaluating, meaning rather than knowledge, asking instead of telling, and well-being rather than success. And with all of those clauses there, I think about um, the study and all of those elements fitting in with uh, the RJE pedagogy framework. This does not imply that rules, policies, evaluation, telling, and success are irrelevant. It simply means that these serve the needs of people living within the community and not the other way around. So thank you.
for uh, your participation. I invite questions and answers <laughs> from you. <laughs> Just you may. Moment, just so I can you use want to this borrow microphone. Um, so we will invite you to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Rhonda will have the microphone, and this is really so that um, those that are joining us on Facebook Live can hear. So while we are a small but mighty group here physically, we do want uh, those participants mm -hmm. to be able to hear your questions. So please wait for her to bring the mic to you. I'm just curious, Kathy, how many students were involved in this study? Do you know? Wow, that's a really good question. I didn't mean to pose a stumper right off the bat. Yeah, exactly. Um, directly, indirectly, um, I mean, when I think about who the participants were, so classroom teachers, assistants, uh, support service personnel, building administrators, central office, I'm going to say all of them. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I never thought about it that way in terms of especially the classroom observations and then the cumulative number of students impacted by those classroom teachers. Great question. Behind you. Hey, Kathy. Uh, my name is Isaiah Don Carter. I have a question about your rubric and yes. uh, the data points that you talked about uh -huh. and wondering if there was any data points that came up that were not on the rubric uh, that were trending in the data. Mm. Can you say a little bit more what you're thinking there? Yeah. Yes, so you had the three um, three on the side, and that talked that to one? the five on the top. Mm -hmm. And so I was just wondering if there were some trends that came up that didn't fit into those, those boxes. Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, OK. Thank you. Now I got you. Um, I wouldn't say I saw trends. Um, there were certainly some conversations about um, kind of process of schools or uh, the division as a whole working with RJE. So it's in the data, but it's not data that I mind. Yeah, that's probably the, the first and best example that comes to mind. I will say that when I was pulling together this presentation, I had to go back and mine the data a little bit deeper for the assessment and evaluation. I mean, if I look at this framework, that was the one that was probably the thinnest. Um, quantitatively um, on the qualitative data. <laughs> yeah, good question. Do you have any follow-up or does that kind of, I, I might have to think about that further. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Isaiah. Um, when you were going through all the different points in the matrix, I thought these are all really good practices of any kind of teaching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was wondering why 
what is it about the restorative justice framework that shows different things or highlights different areas? I wonder if you could just say yeah. what those might be. Um, one of the things I think about is the intentionality of that. Um, as a lifelong edu educator, uh, it can become sometimes a little too easy to resort to what I've done before. I think having an RJE framework um, keeps that in front of me, at least for me personally, in thinking about what I do. Um, I myself right now am enrolled in the RJE certificate program. And that definitely impacts how I think about the work I do every day. So students came in right before this, this session wanting to talk about something challenging them. And I certainly thought about student voice, how I listen to them, how I respond to them, the importance of the value of honesty and integrity in that conversation, um, talking a bit about um, it's important that when we name something, that we name it, um, I say accurately, but it's, it has to be from their perspective, but that we don't exaggerate the story in ways to bring gain to ourselves, for example. That's one example. But it really does frame kind of how I think about it. It's right there. So I think that's the difference, the intentionality um, in that and in thinking about uh, who we want to be, who I want to be, who we want the systems to be that we work within, uh, I think shapes, at least for me, shapes those decisions. I'd be curious to hear about what, how other people would answer your question too. Yeah, and I think going back, which is actually where I started to, going back to those values um, as well. That's a pretty extensive list of values. I don't know, anything missing from that, Kathy? <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Kathy, for a very thorough methods and uh, findings presentation. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that you did interviews, observations, and surveys uh, is mm -hmm. significant. My question is about your unit of analysis, which appeared to be mm -hmm. the classroom and the classroom teacher mm -hmm. interacting mm -hmm. with students. But then at the end, you had a very interesting sentence. There was evidence that RJE is transforming the system and influencing decisions, policies, and actions. Can you give an example of some of that evidence? There's your answer, Isaiah. <laughs> um, yeah, one I think of is um, conversation with a few people about policies. And how is RJE threaded through and into policies? When we look at that policy, I mean, some would, would have said about some things, there's no RJE in there at all. It's a punitive, whatever it might be. Or how we look at handbooks, um, the documents that a school division or educational institution um, has in place. How is that threaded, threaded through there? So I think having, um, hearing some conversations reported to me that didn't fit that matrix but that talked about some things the school is hoping to work on, um, the division and schools individually are hoping to work on, I think is one piece that I would say gives some evidence that it's, it's threaded throughout. Are faculty and staff using circles with each other? Yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
my question was similar to Dave's. Like so much of the data that I read is very much about the classroom and what happens mm -hmm. at the classroom mm -hmm. level from that more ecological perspective. Like, did people talk about system structures, policies? Um, and like one of the things that I think I reflect on a lot in our own RJE program is mm -hmm. how are we preparing people to think at that system level? And how do we do a better job? And so I guess my mm -hmm. follow-up question to Dave's question would be, yeah. like if you were to revamp our RJE mm -hmm. program curriculum or tweak it based mm -hmm. on your data, what kinds of things might you add other than, of course, the RJE pedagogy class that we're developing? Right. <laughs> there was a little ad I heard there. <laughs> Marketing strategy. Um, Maybe it would be, I mean, if you're talking about courses, maybe it would be course on how to bring about system change, um, both from an RJE perspective, ethos, and also one that is embedded in RJE, you know, both the process and kind of the end product. That would be where that is, yes, yes. That's the next course to develop. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good question, and I think that, um, and Isaiah, your question too, in, in conjunction with that, does make me think about going back into the data and reading it perhaps a little bit differently, you know, because I was pretty, pretty honed in on the matrix for the purpose of this. But I still have the data. It ain't going anywhere. Well, and part of the question comes from a, a former grad student who mm. did go on to do doc work, and he took this model, that graphic uh -huh. right there, uh -huh. and integrated it with Bronfenbrenner's ecological development model and, and tweaked those a little bit to think about how we think about nurturing healthy relationships mm -hmm. at the interpersonal, uh, you know, that microsystem, mesosystem, right. exosystem, and macrosystem, and how do we think about each of those components at each of those mm -hmm. systems level thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think about that, like, with regard to this mm -hmm. data set, like, what does that look like then to expand that? So, yeah. yeah, thank you. As we often say, that's beyond the scope of my study, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which it actually was, but there is some data about that, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for these questions. Hi. Um, I had a question. I saw that a couple things um, in your findings got repeated over different categories. They did. <laughs> so I was wondering about like which strategies came across as being critical, like either as, because they were really important in one area or because they applied to a lot of different areas. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so I think of SEL skills, for example, as one of those, that it's definitely social-emotional learning um, certainly fits with nurture-healthy relationships. Um, I don't think it shows on this one, but I think it also is a skill that informs how uh, we repair, harm, and transform conflict. Um, probably also a skill that impacts just and equitable learning environments. So it did get a little bit, um, and I think student voice or hearing voice, listening was another one that came across. Um, and there were times when it was hard to know where to put those, so some of those that had overlap. I tended, sometimes I tended to leave it where the, where the um, 
participant noted it. But I'm not done with the data set yet, so some of those may find themselves in other categories. Um, I also am probably uh, just my own perspective on data set like this is that um, there's a lot of, of fuzziness. In fact, I thought about at the end, which I did not say, but one of the ideas I was thinking of was to say that if there's, you know, if there are people among us who like a really neat and tidy um, study at the end, this is the wrong one. <laughs> you know, it just isn't quite that neat and tidy. And I think it's because there are, are elements of RJE components that overlap those categories. Even though we have this neat and tidy matrix, it doesn't, the data didn't always fit in or the examples don't always fit in there. Um, so in terms of how teachers implement it, um, you know, I would certainly encourage them to implement it in ways that make sense to them. Like again, that intentionality. So how am I thinking about what I'm doing in a certain incident in my classroom? Um, how do I keep RJ as the focus of where that is happening? Perhaps more so than whether it is content, learning experiences, et cetera. It's kind of the conversation that was SEL over or circles over content uh, learning, that emphasis. I don't know if you want to follow up, if there's any. Okay. Yeah, good question. There's one right there. Yep. The EMU one. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Sarah Kennel. I just had a question about, you mentioned initially that the different groups, or uh, the different participants mm -hmm. are in very different roles or disciplinary areas. And that makes me kind of wonder, with those different job descriptions, does the implementation of RJE look different hmm. based on whether they're an administrator versus mm -hmm. a classroom teacher? or um, a student service provider that might have mm -hmm. more of a counseling background. Right. right. And what does accountability for those RGAE practices look like based on different job descriptions? Mm. So the first part, does it look, yeah, does it look different? And then the accountability piece. Um, one of the reasons why I want to give the whole data set is because, um, this is answering your question, is <laughs> because um, classroom teachers, depending on their opportunity to be in other teachers' classrooms or the opportunity to, uh, or how much they talk with others, may not know what other people are doing in terms of instructional practice that's RJE related. So I think by um, having tools that can say, this is what, you know, what some of your peers are saying is RJE. I think is one way in which um, to help expand their thinking. So I think for classroom teachers in specific, it can, it can be, it doesn't have to be, but it can be kind of tunnel vision in terms of what it looks like. And I recall uh, very specifically some conversations with teachers and just talking about how, you know, this isn't really what I've thought about before, what this might look like in my classroom, how it relates to RJE. Um, I think 
And yes, I think your, your point about, you know, can it look different, I would agree with that. I think building administrators, for example, were able to talk about um, RJE based on different things that they observe because they're around the school all the time. And they really do have um, just a, a pretty in-depth perspective about what RJE looks like. Uh, in their schools. And I think central office personnel, again, they hear so much from other people um, talking about it that they had a good, it felt to me like they had a good handle on what it looks like in classrooms. So, um, and student support services, yes, some people who have counseling training. Uh, that shapes differently how they think about perhaps healthy relationships. So is there a part of your question on that one that I missed? I know I missed the accountability. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, your question, sorry, your question about accountability and just what that looks like in the school? Yeah, Relate. I suppose it, I imagine that it looks different regarding every situation, yeah. but have you been seeing any forms of accountability or any specific roles that take that on or is that mm -hmm. not something since it's so theoretical is it not as important to do that i would like to say it's important to do that because i think if a school division is going to further the mission then somehow <laughs> i'd like accountability but it also seems contradictory to rje <laughs> let's put it in an accountability yeah system um, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to just say that I would, would think there's greater benefit in um, people catching the vision, seeing the difference it's making, and catching that story, and then integrating. I believe in the ripple effect when it comes to, to these kinds of things very much. So, um, I mean, RJE does talk a lot about accountability and responsibility, but I don't think accountability in this case in terms of how RJE is implemented. It's more accountability for one's own actions and behaviors. Yeah, great question. Thanks, Sarah. First, I want to say thank you again to Kathy for her presentation and just what she was able to share with us today. Hopefully, everyone's taking away a piece of knowledge that they get to hold with them as they leave from this place and join us for a reception after. Um, right outside these doors, and you'll see where we'll be gathering. Um, just for extended conversation, more questions. Um, I know sometimes we might not want to ask to the whole group, but if we have that one-on-one -on -one time, it's an opportunity to engage in an additional conversation and, and inquiry about the work that Kathy is doing. And, and so, Kathy. and Kathy, right, <laughs> we have both. Um, so let's just give another round of applause, and we'll see you in the reception area. Thank you, everyone.